Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 18th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm your guest anchor, Indiana's own Dana Black. Indiana's Democratic, used to be the Democratic Party chair, but not that anymore, but we're still here. Uh, a grand jury in New York City voted last Thursday to indict Donald Trump, the first time in history that a former U.S. president has faced criminal charges. We certainly live in unprecedented times. I thought I would feel a sense of euphoria. However, it's a very sobering feeling right now. With, with other pending indictments against Trump, our nation could be in for a long, protracted series of trials. NBC reports that the historic indictment comes in a case centered on $130,000 in payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels, her real name is Stephanie Clifford, during the closing days of the 2016 presidential campaign. Daniels claimed she slept with the married Trump in 2006, a claim which Trump has denied. He also had classified reimbursement of the payout as a legal expense. ABC News reports that as, a le as legal experts speculate on what charges lay inside the sealed indictment ahead of former Don uh, President Donald Trump's expected surrender on Tuesday afternoon, many predict that prosecutors could try out a new legal theory to justify bringing the charges. This could be a novel legal theory, said Kate Shaw, a law professor at Cordozo, and ABC News contributors speculating on what charges the public could see against Trump while stressing it's unknown until the indictment is unsealed. Finally, it is interesting to note some reporting from Newsweek that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has said his state will not assist in any attempt to extradite Florida resident Donald Trump to New York after he became the first ex-president in U.S. history to be criminally indicted. This appears to contradict comments the governor made on March 20 when he insisted we're not getting involved in any way, which outraged prominent Trump supporters. Joining us this evening to unpack these current events while intellectually and emotionally processing this is re a recurring Bring It On guest, Robin Winston, political strategist and former state Democratic Party chair and IU Emeritus Law Professor Joseph Hoffman, an award-winning scholar and previous holder of, of the Harry Pratter professor Professorship and past recipient of the Law School Gavel Award. Gentlemen, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you for having me. Dana, you want to go ahead and kick yep. off? So, okay, well, you have a you have a script there. Um, okay, so guys, first of all, let's talk about the historic nature uh, of this event, the, of, of these charges. We already knew, first of all, a lot of us felt like, like he should have already been indicted a long time ago anyway, right? But here we have, a, you know, grand jury, everything is sealed, but they are bringing charges against the former president. Uh, Robin, I'm going to start with you. Give us your thoughts 
um, on, on on this indictment and how, how does it make you feel as an American knowing that one of our presidents is now going to be on trial? Well, I, I don't know. Um, you know, Dana and, and William and Professor Hoffman, I don't know that we should be doing a victory dance or victory lap. I mean, it is sad that we have this. It's sad that somebody violated the law. It's sad that somebody fought all the way through. Watch how, look at the president's reaction. The president and the vice president said, let's let the legal system play it out like we should. Converse that with having to stand around and listen to Mike Flynn and Donald Trump with no charges can't lock her up at every rally that they were talking about with Clinton. So as Americans, we're at a very precarious time. This is not a time to be with glee. This is not a time to to say, well, I hope he gets locked up and goes to Rikers Island immediately. This is a time, if we truly believe in our judicial system, to let it play out. But it also shows Dana and William and Professor Hoffman that nobody is above the law, whether you're the dude standing on the corner or you're the guy that owns the corner or you're the guy that was president of the United States. And I think that's what the American people, I hope, segments of the American people will look upon this. Very well put, sir. Okay, um, so this is, well, let me back up. Right now we have the Manhattan case, the federal case, the New York State civil case, and the Georgia criminal inquiry. Now, this is only the first indictment. At some point, you would think the MAGA base would uh, maybe become just a little bit weary of the incessant whining and complaining from Trump and Republicans day after day after day, but so far they haven't. So given how Republicans have worked up and, and portraying just the first indictment, what are your thoughts on how they might react if we're looking at possibly a second, third, or fourth indictment over the next uh, few years? Professor, you want to... Well, well sure, I'll, I'll take a, a crack at that. I mean, it, we've seen no evidence to suggest that uh, Trump's most loyal followers, believers will, um, you know, w- will turn their back on him. Um, h- as he himself, um, you know, infamously put it, you know, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue in New York City and his people would still stick with him. Um, we can be surprised by that, shocked by the that disappointed by that, but I don't think it makes any difference um, to his base whether he gets indicted um, again um, in Georgia or um, or by the feds. Um, they've already been primed to believe that whatever happens is all a p- political witch hunt. That's what they've been told by their their you know beloved leader and. They're going to go with that. So I wouldn't hold out any false hopes that um, this will make a difference to the base. The question that matters is whether it'll make a difference to somebody else. And the somebody else here is, um, you know, there are a couple of, of possible, you know, candidates for people who might actually think that this matters. Um, one is the possibility that, um, you know, independents, people who are not um, necessarily, I mean, there are still a few of those in the world, um, believe it or not. Um, and, um their votes count. And when elections come down to, you know, a handful of votes, every vote counts. And, you know, you got to win elections if you want to make things happen. 
And, um, you know, one of the ways to do that will be to pry some of those people, um, you know, push them into um, into being opposed to Mr. Trump. The other possibility, although I think it's it's more remote, is that there may be mainstream and I mean, traditional mainstream Republicans who um, have been looking for a reason to um, these are not Trump's base. These are these are, you know, the people who he would call the rhinos. Um, but th- there are a lot of those people around. And um, they've been kind of looking for a reason sometimes to to put Trump in the rearview mirror. And, um, you know, enough. Now, now, those those very people, the very people I'm describing um, are at the moment uh, mostly rushing to Trump's defense. One notable exception to that is Mitch McConnell, who has been very silent about all of this um, in the last week. Um, but. But for the most part, even people you would consider, you know, uh, non-Trump supporters have um, been in his corner this past week. And that's for the optics. That's because, you know, if you're a politician, um, you know, this, this is a kind of costless way to signal to the base that you're their friend. Um, but um, at some point, you know, when the election gets closer, I mean, the truth is there are people who in the party who want to take Trump down. Obviously, DeSantis, obviously Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson just declared yesterday that he's a candidate, Mike Pence um, from our own home state of Indiana. These are all people who would like to take Trump down. They've got to be super careful about how they do it. It's got to be done in a way that doesn't, um, frankly, if they could do it in, in, in secret, in a way that no one would find out, that's what they'd like. But maybe um, enough criminal charges against Trump provides them some cover. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Like I said, I'm a little, I'm a little skeptical about that. But um, at some point, if those people want to be president, they've got to take him out. They've got to get him off the stage. That's a, that's a very good point, uh, Professor. I, I agree with you 100 percent that uh, Donald Trump still is running the program. Uh, the most uh, celebrated person, I think, that I think has been quiet has been Hillary Clinton. If there's ever anybody that would probably love to say something and might have the, the rationale to be able to say something or flag it or shake her keys and yell, lock them up, it could be her. But we don't even know what the charges are yet. My fear, though, uh, Dana, William, and, and Professor, is if you if you follow the MAGA strategy, I don't know that there... I was in New York not more than about a couple... Uh, three, three or four months ago. I don't know that they're going to land at JFK or drive in and cross the Brooklyn Bridge, make their way into Manhattan, wearing camo gear, and coming from places that all of us know that we probably probably don't frequent and make their way into town Manhattan and not be noticed. I think they're not going to be welcomed the same way that they were in in other places. What my bigger fear is that some quiet, tranquil federal office in Des Moines, Iowa, or Atlanta, Georgia, or Columbia, South Carolina will see the violence. Mm-hmm. Just like the dude went into Cincinnati after the FBI office. You know, it's it's so I don't know that it will manifest itself at ground zero. There'll probably be some protests. And I think there'll be 
They had to put up an audition stage is what I said this weekend for all the 24 candidates and let them get up on it because they all are going to genuflect to the building behind them called Trump Tower. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't know. I just I'm more fearful of it doesn't follow logic. Violence doesn't follow logic. Never has. It's why it's called senseless. And you end up with something on the Tuesday afternoon in, I don't know, Tacoma, Washington. That's that's my bigger concern. Well, you know, we we we, you know, the, the greatest internal terrorist act in U.S. history occurred under somewhat similar circumstances. A young man, very confused, um, got upset about the federal government and its role at Waco, Texas, and he blew up a federal building in Oklahoma City and killed 168 people. That's the kind of event you're talking about, Mr. Winston, and I, I yeah. completely agree with you that that's the kind of violence that is is more likely to occur than something that involves you know, the actual events going on in New York City. And Professor, he did that because that was the office of the ATF that had dispatched the agents to Waco. So that and 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 I didn't know until I saw I didn't realize Timothy McVeigh was at Waco, but he was actually at Waco standing there um, in his former military garb outside of the the um, the fence area during the whole siege. Not the entire time, but he was there. So that manifested his anger. And you're right, sir. I mean, blowing up the Murat building, where the prosecutor in that case was Merrick Garland that brought them to justice. Um, so just keep in mind, it's it, they don't always direct it the way you would think, is what I'd say, Dana and, and William. And I, I absolutely agree with that. And one of the things that, you know, we you mentioned uh, Mitch McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell, not really being very vocal. Well, he got, he had a little accident last couple of weeks he fell down and bumped his head so uh that may be one of the reasons why he's been a little silent but that being said there's a trend across the country where most folks are just too daggone afraid of of Donald Trump now i don't understand how anyone is afraid of an orange 75 year old but hey they are they're petrified <laughs> nikki haley is scared desantis is scared they are all petrified However, you see the the black prosecutors across the country who have legitimate reason to investigate Donald Trump are doing so full throated. Even after in uh, Georgia, they tried to strip uh, uh, Judge uh, Prosecutor Fannie uh, of her role as as a prosecutor and being able to prosecute the case. Do you think that because of the um, the Fear that these folks have these these gun toting AR fifteen gotta have them people. The fear that they have of Donald Trump is the reason why they're saying, "Hey, everybody else, get out here, do this, do this protesting for me," because we're too chicken to do it. Um, you know, there's. I think what you just said has you know everything to do with the political class, right? The political class fears Donald Trump because, for obvious reasons, you know, if you're if you're a Republican, you need Trump's people, or you can't possibly win. Republicans just aren't that popular. So you know, in, in other ways, so basically, you got to have Trump's voters, or you can't possibly win. And that has a lot to do. I mean, yes, fear is the right word. Those people are afraid of him. Pence is still afraid of him, even though he's taken baby steps. He's he's still afraid of Donald Trump. He 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 had the gumption to do the right thing on January sixth, and he hasn't had very much gumption ever since. Um, Mitch McConnell, I think. Um, he's in a kind of unique situation because Trump cost him the uh, majority leadership in the Senate this past election uh, during the midterms. He's pissed at Donald Trump. 
<laughs> from McConnell's point of view, Trump has got to go. And that's I, I do. I mean, I know he was, as you said, he was injured recently. But um, but I think he honestly is the most uh, sort of anxious to push Trump off the stage. And I think that has a lot to do with why he's being silent now. The rank and file, I don't know that fear is the right word. I think they are motivated by, um, you know, whatever motivates people to follow QAnon, whatever motivates people to join cults. Um, you know, they, they look at this as, as some kind of version of pro wrestling. Um, it's, it's ironic, but not irrelevant that Donald Trump was involved in professional wrestling at an earlier point in his life. He knows how the, you know, the game is played. You, you get people thinking it's good versus evil and you get everybody to take sides and you pretend like it's a big giant video game or a, or a pro wrestling match. And the people will march with you pretty much to the ends of the earth or to the, you know, inside of the Capitol building on January 6th. So I don't know that fear is what motivates those people. I mean, the fear, fear of what the world is, is, you know, what's happening in the world, but I don't think they're afraid of Donald Trump. I think it's the political class that's afraid of Donald Trump. And I think the prosecutions, just to get back to kind of our, our main subject today, I think, I think the prosecutors in each of these cases, you know, I just had a, a class the other day with my students at the law school, I still do some teaching uh, over there. And um, the subject of the day was politics and prosecution. And we all know that prosecutors are supposed to be above politics to a certain extent and are, are not supposed to make their decisions. Um, they're not, you know, this is not meant to be a political act when you, when you prosecute someone. But when you're dealing with someone with the prominence of a Donald Trump, you and in lots of other cases, too, you can't help but think about the political repercussions of what you're doing. The U.S. Justice Department has rules about that, that you're not supposed to do any kind of prosecutorial action too close to an election because of the impact that that could have on the election. A lot of people think that that rule was violated before the presidential election um, involving Hillary Clinton. Um, but they have a rule about that. And there's a reason for that rule. It's because everybody knows that prosecution decisions to charge people with crimes or even to investigate in a way that goes public um, can have an impact on the electoral system. And prosecutors have to think about these things. And I think all of the prosecutors who've been involved in investigating Donald Trump um, in the last year or two have been very cautious about you know, whether they've got the goods on him, whether they've got the evidence, when is the time to to move forward with those charges? Um, yes, fear is an, a word you could use there, too. But I'm, I'm not sure I'd use I'd say fear. I'd say concern that uh, what you do could backfire by making him more popular politically. You know that even if he's convicted, even if he's convicted of a felony, even if New York puts him in in prison for a felony crime, he can still run for president. It's 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 already happened. I mean, the, the rules are very clear about that. The Constitution says that there are only three qualifications to be president of the United States. You have to be a natural born citizen. You have to have lived in the U.S. for 14 years at least. And you have to be 35 years old. And no one not Congress, not a court, not anyone can add a requirement to that. 
Those are the only requirements. So being convicted of a crime does not disable Donald J. Trump from running for president, from being elected president, from serving as president. And if you're a prosecutor, you have to think about that. You have to think about whether charging him with a crime is going to actually make it more likely that his supporters will be more motivated to come out and and vote for him and affect that election. I think all the prosecutors have been concerned about that. I assume and we won't know until we see the charges and we see some start to see some of the evidence. I assume that the prosecutor in, in New York went forward because they knew they had the goods. They, they wouldn't have done it otherwise. There's no way they would have done this on speculation. You know, and they had to convince a majority of 24 uh, or 23, sorry, uh, grand jurors who would have been sitting in that room to vote to indict Donald Trump. A grand jury doesn't have to be unanimous, but it has to be a majority of, of a large group of average citizens have to agree that these charges are valid. That's kind of, I think, what's in the background on all of these these criminal cases is, is how, how do you do this in a way that doesn't uh, have an adverse effect on what we know will happen? You know, he's going to run. Uh, for president. Um, he's more likely to run now that he's been charged probably than before. And, um, you know, and he's, he's on his way. So, you know, the prosecutors have to think about that because he can still be elected. There have been candidates who ran for president from, from prison cells. Eugene Debs was one. Professor Hoffman, but Dana, before I get back to the issue of, uh, go ahead, Robin, I'm sorry. But no, no, the professor is, is exactly right. And can you imagine being the Fulton County prosecutor and messing this one up and the ramifications that that would have, particularly in a truly, I'm going to over, this is a Venn diagram, Dana and William, politics does overlay um, prosecution right now. If she met that up, what that does to Georgia in 24, New York is, is you know, um, you've got New York. Don't forget, you still have Letitia James with cases against the Trump organization. Right. But I think when we look what's going to be presented uh, as why there are 30 charges uh, and what they are, I, I, I don't know that that will change the dynamics within the Republican Party. But I think it will, would, back to what uh, Professor Hoffman said, some of the more mainstream folks, I think, will take a pause. What's beginning to happen in their party is this. In the general elections, Donald Trump has lost. He lost in 2020. Now, he can say all he wants about he didn't lose, but he lost. But he also lost in 22 because so many candidates adhere to Donald Trump. And he lost in 19 in other states. And he lost in 18. I mean, you know, so his track record of coattails have really not been, have not really been that long. Okay. So, so I'm not sure that politically there's a lot of rancor. We all know we've all been in enough meetings. The loudest person in the room, we just went through it the other week, Dana, the loudest person in the room often gets the most attention, but that doesn't mean that's how the room feels overall. So that's what we have to keep in mind in their party. One last thing that I'd say is I, I never look at the rhetoric. I look at the reality. They wanted to censor Mitt Romney because he voted to impeach Donald Trump. They wanted to admit censoring. Okay. Other states have gone against their own sitting U.S. senators and said, we're going to censor you as a member of our party because you went against Donald Trump. So the, the kind of hierarchy within the party, we saw it here in Indiana with their own state convention where Eric Holcomb, a moderate in their mind, in their mind, a moderate, um, maybe even 
left of center governor who lost 11% of the vote to Donald Rainwater because he wanted masks and other things there. All of his candidates that he put forth at the state convention of the Republican Party were defeated. So the mainstream, I think, has lost. I think the mainstream activists, but the moderates, the, the remainders of the Bush Daniels, Cheney wing of that party still are not convinced of Donald Trump. And that's who ends up voting for us to make Raphael Warnock a U.S. Senator. John Fetterman, that's that's been our benefit there. Yeah, another way to, to think about the political class, the Republican political class, is, you know, politicians, by and large, don't get to be national level politicians or even state level politicians by being bold. That's just not the way that you succeed as a politician. That gets you in trouble. Sooner or later, you make a misstep and and you have more to lose by being bold than you have to gain. Politicians are the kind of people who hold 14 focus groups to figure out what to say, right? That's how they live. And if you're a Republican right now, these are ambitious people, incredibly ambitious people. You know, we have other candidates for the Republican nomination, declared and undeclared. These people want to be president of the United States. They know they have to get Trump out of the way to do that. But they're all waiting for the other person to take that step and and, and to be the, you know, the one who puts the knife into Caesar. Right. They're all waiting for someone else to do that. Because that's the bold move that they don't want to make personally. It's possible that these prosecutions are going to give them the cover that they need, but that remains to be seen. That remains to be seen. Let me mention one other thing. Um, you know, William, you, you had mentioned, um, you know, in setting up today's program that, you know, you wanted to talk about some of the constitutional implications of a, of a presidential candidate being charged. I've already mentioned that, that you can't you know, that none of this is going to prevent Donald Trump from running for president or from being elected president. That can happen even if he's convicted, even if he's sitting in prison on election day, he can still be elected president. But there's another constitutional um, principle that's important here, and that is if he gets elected president, that probably, I think almost certainly, operates as a temporary get out of jail free card for him. Um, the, the Constitution, its structure, the way it's designed is not thought, it's not believed that the Constitution would allow any state or federal prosecutor to prevent someone from carrying out the duties, the constitutional duties of the presidency by putting that person in prison. Think about the mischief that could occur if Someone, say, a, a, a political opponent, I'm not saying that's what's happening here at all, but if, if someday a political opponent of a sitting president, say, were to be able to, to charge them with a crime, a prosecutor, and, and get a local jury to convict them and then come and arrest them and put them in jail. No, the Constitution, um, I think it's, it's pretty well understood that the Constitution would insist that for the period that a person is elected to serve as the president of the United States, during that period, you can't hold them in prison or jail and prevent them from carrying out the duties of the president. That's the reason why you can't even charge a sitting president with a crime. Now, we don't have any precedent for a person 
being in prison when they're elected. But I think the same principle pretty firmly establishes that um, you've got to let them do their job as president, which means, you know, they can't do their job while sitting in a prison cell. You're going to have to let them out. You're going to have to you're going to have to let them serve because that trumps no pun intended that trumps, um, you know, you can put them back in prison after they're out of office again. But you can't let you can't let the state or even federal um, criminal justice system, um, you know, you can't let that deprive the American people of who they elected president. So at the end of the day, we're back to you got to win elections, right? If you're going to defeat Trump at the end of the day, you've got to beat him in the election. That's inevitable. Whether he's convicted or whether he's not, you've got to defeat him in the election. So would they be able to... Would they be able to, I mean, I know that he's already been impeached twice, but because the Senate had the Republican majority, they didn't convict. If they convicted, if if he was found to be guilty of criminal charges... While as president, could they then do another, a third impeachment and then remove him from office at that point? Of course, that is the constitutional remedy for a president who uh, commits a transgression. That is the constitutional remedy is impeachment and conviction. And that could be done immediately. For example, if Donald Trump is convicted now, of course, none of this is going to play out probably quickly enough to be resolved before 2024 anyway. And we all know that Trump is the ultimate master at running out the clock. So the odds that any of these criminal proceedings are going to actually reach closure before 2024 are near zero. It's just not going to happen that quickly. There'll be motions, there'll be delays. Trust me, this is not going to play out that quickly. But let's assume for sake of argument that it did. Let's assume he got convicted. You can't charge a president or convict a president once they're in office. That that absolutely stops the clock. We know that. But but even let's assume he got convicted before he took office. Let's assume he's sitting in the prison cell, convicted, sentenced and and sitting in prison on election day. And then let's assume that he prevails on election day. All right. He gets inaugurated. Right. Uh, Congress could impeach him immediately. The the Senate could impeach him immediately. The House, sorry, the House could impeach him and the Senate could try him immediately for what he did. That could be considered disabling. I would hope to God that it would be. You would hope that that our um, senators and representatives would would be wise enough and and moral enough to to understand that. And they could remove him from office and then he stays in his in his prison cell. But my point is impeachment is the constitutional remedy. And just as you can't charge a person who is a president, sitting president with a crime, I think it's pretty clear, although we have no precedent, that similarly you can't keep a president in prison while they are the sitting president. You have to let them do their their constitutional job. And uh, just like just like you can't there there are rules in the constitution about how you can't interfere with a congressperson while they're doing their job. You can't interfere with a Supreme Court justice while they're doing their job. The framers didn't actually think that this could ever happen with the president, um, that they might be sitting in prison on election day. Um, but if they are, I think you got to let them do their job. Then impeach the hell out of them, convict them on the impeachment, get them out of the presidency, let someone else take over, and then you can do whatever you 
whatever you need to do. Yeah, but, but that's, that's the constitution. They didn't imagine it because they did never right. imagine we would actually elect a criminal, right? Of course, he's, of, he's, of course he not. was a criminal before he was president. He, people just wanted to gloss over that. Well, but, you know, the, fra- the framers thought that the Electoral College would protect us from anything like this uh, because those would be actual smart people sitting in a room and they would be the ones electing the president. And would they ever choose someone who was sitting in a prison cell? Of course not. So they never thought that that could ever happen. Hey, real quick, folks, uh, for our listening audience, we're speaking with IU Professor Emeritus Joseph Hoffman and Democratic Party strategist Robin Winston about the recent indictment of uh, Donald Trump, former president. Um, yeah. Got a question. Well, first of all, Professor Hoffman, I'm becoming concerned that you're reading my list of questions because you keep answering them before I ask them. Um, so here goes. Alvin Bragg is the elected district attorney for New York County covering Manhattan. Uh, what is the relationship or the difference between the federal charges brought by the DOJ and federal charges brought by the state? The state can't technically bring federal charges that that that's some that's not a possibility there there's a little bit of confusion here about the relationship between the state and federal charges um and again all of this at this point is speculation because we don't know what the charges are that indictment is sealed it won't be unsealed for a few more days so we're we're simply speculating at this point. I don't even know that we know exactly how many charges, although I heard Mr. Winston mention 30. I think even that is a guess or or there's been some rumors about that. Until the indictment is unsealed, we won't know the nature of the charges. Um and and we won't even know whether it's directly related to the um you know the Stormy Daniels payment or whether it's about the payment to another woman, uh McDougal, who who Trump allegedly also paid off before the the twenty sixteen election. All of this is speculation at this point. But having said all of that, um one of the speculations is that um the basis of the state law charge in this case which is the only thing a state prosecutor can bring um is essentially um fraud and and misrepresentation on records of a, of of Mr Trump of, or of his business that he's personally responsible for so basically a kind of business fraud making misstatements or or false statements on business documents. That in New York is typically a misdemeanor crime. And um, the speculation, you know, you referenced this novel theory at the beginning of the program. The speculation is that um, the, the, the Manhattan DA is seeking to boost those charges from misdemeanor to felony by linking them, so under New York law, if those business records are falsified, it's typically a misdemeanor unless it was done in furtherance of some other crime. That's how New York law works. Then it becomes a felony. And the speculation is that the prosecutor is going to use a federal crime as the crime for which these business records were falsified namely election fraud, federal election fraud, which is a federal crime. 
So so it's a kind of linking of a state crime. You can't the state prosecutor can't charge anything but a state crime, but they can charge the state crime and then allege that the state crime was committed in furtherance of another crime, which was a federal crime. That's the novel theory. It's novel because there's no precedent for using a federal crime as the crime that enhances the state crime from a misdemeanor to a felony. That's the novel theory. And so we have to wait and see if that really is what's being alleged in the indictment. And if it is, then we'll have to wait and see what the New York courts say about that. Well, thank you for clarifying that. that Yeah. Federal crime, the federal, the federal crimes have to be prosecuted by a federal prosecutor, okay. by a U.S. attorney. Dana, <laughs> there we go. So the next question I actually had was was about the uh, the order. We 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 mentioned that if he's con- if he's already in prison, what that would look like. Do you think it's possible that the prosecutors would, even if it's close to the election? have the charges even before the election happens would the clock stop if he's elected even after they've been charged they would never they wouldn't be able to prosecute moving forward i think that's pretty clear i mean you know you never can say anything in in the law is 100 percent clear we thought roe versus wade was pretty secure until a year ago um you, you can't really say but um, but all of the precedent, all of the theory suggests that if and it's almost inevitable that these cases will not reach closure before the election. OK, so let's say worst case scenario, Trump wins the election. Um, at that point, again, the Constitution takes precedent over uh, precedence over um, even these pending criminal actions. Now, there is clear precedent going back to the Nixon case, um, U.S. versus Nixon, that a president, while they are sitting as president, still they have to comply with certain requirements of the legal system. What happened technically in the Nixon case is that other people were being charged with crimes. These are the people who committed the, the Watergate burglaries. And Nixon had, it was believed that he had evidence that would help either convict or acquit these people. And a subpoena was issued to President Nixon. He was president of the United States. And the subpoena said, you know, comply, turn over this evidence. And Nixon said, hey, I'm a sitting president. I don't have to deal with any of this. And the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled against him and said, yes, you do. You have to provide the evidence to the people who need it for their criminal cases. All right, so that's one principle. Even a sitting president has to do certain things while they're president to basically, like any other citizen, provide evidence, comply with subpoenas, turn over documents, all that you got to do. President Clinton ran into some of that too in a civil case while he was president. But the president has to, above all else, has to be enabled, has to be free to carry out their constitutional functions. And charging the president with a crime would disable the president from carrying him. Mean, they're not going to be able to meet with people in the Oval Office. They're not going to be able to get on Air yep. Force One and go visit whatever. So basically, it stops the clock on charging them with a crime, on pursuing a criminal case, even if it's pending. You can't use that to interfere with the office. The office of the president takes precedence here. Okay. And and so yes, I I I believe 
pretty pretty strongly that um, if he's in prison, they'll have to let him out so he can serve. If he's got pending charges, they'll have to hold him in abeyance until he, his term is up or until he gets impeached, fingers crossed, right, uh, and convicted and removed from office. Um, and they won't be able to charge him with any new crimes once he's president. They'll have to wait. So it's, yes, it's going to stop that. I think it's going to stop the clock on everything. everything. Un- unless they impeach him and get him out of office, it's going to stop the clock on everything. And so, Robin, as a, as a strategist, in, you oh, know, if you had a, if you had a, a candidate right now um, that was coming to you and saying, you know, I want to be the next president of the United States, you know, regardless of party, right, at this point. What what kind of strategy would you kind of use knowing that these charges were out there, whether or not, you know, knowing that the clock is stopping? But from a political, let's talk about it from a political perspective. What would the strategy be for you if you were going to help a candidate who wanted to run for president? If I were trying to help a candidate other than Donald Trump, is that what you mean? Or if I'm a, well, first, I'd never advise them to run um, because I, I think they'd be in trouble from day one. I think you'd have, but I don't think the rules apply to us the same way they apply to Donald Trump. Um, let, let me switch for this crazy theoretical discussion that I was advising him. I would advise you to tamp down the response of your protesters, because while we have constitutional and legal things to follow, people are people. And, you know, having a picture with him with a baseball bat on the other side of the prosecutor, that doesn't, what what good does that do? Having, you know, a bunch of folks show up in camo gear with masks, in front of the federal courthouse, um, what does that do? You already got those people. I've always learned in the business, you've already got those people. But I want to go back to to my mentor in all this, one of them, who was Maynard Jackson, the mayor of Atlanta, who said to me, Robin, there's no such thing as coincidence in politics. There's a reason he filed early for president. Basically, going back to what Professor Hoffman said, because there'll always be the aura or the specter above him that I'm a presidential candidate, and they're only doing this because I'm a presidential candidate. If he were Donald J. Trump guy living at Bedminster and living or down in Mar-a-Lago, whole different world. But now he's mobilized his supporters, not only um, politically, but folks, he's raised millions of dollars financially because he's running for president. All the talk shows this morning will talk about in spite of this, he leads the pack on the Republican side. So to answer your question, uh, Dana, I would never advise anybody to do this with all this going on. I mean, my gosh, we I helped Governor O'Bannon run twice. We went over his tax returns. We went over all of his stock ownings. We were we were prepared when our opponent came forth and made wild allegations about stock that the governor owned. We were prepared for that. We were prepared. Um, little small thing. He represented, stood in front of a judge in Harrison County and represented a guy that um, had been accused of shooting a state trooper. He was only the attorney of record. He just signed in the post for that person to be there. They tried to make it into he defended him. He never defended him. He never went to court with him. But uh, so you have to research it. In Donald Trump's case, here's the fundamental thing, Dana. What we say to every candidate when we close the door, tell me the truth. And I don't know that that is possible 
by sitting down with this guy. Okay. I think Michael Cohen thought he was telling the truth. Alan Weisenberg might have thought he was telling the truth. Uh, uh, Ivanka, all, everybody. His, I don't know that that's possible if you're going to sit down and say, let's, let's, let's be prepared for what we got to be prepared for. I personally think that he was caught off guard being indicted. I don't think he thought he'd ever be indicted. I mean, I think that's why they're scrambling because they never thought they'd be indicted. They just know there's no way to do this. The other thing that, that, um, as you've mentioned Nixon and, and at that point, there was some civility in the Republican party. Barry Goldwater, the titular head of the Republicans was able to go, um, over and sit down. He and Sarbanes and some other long term Republicans. We're able to sit down with Nixon and say, you've got to get out. The, and it would, and because looming behind them was common sense. I don't know anyone is going to close the door and say that to Donald Trump. And if they do, they do like they did Liz Cheney, who said it and you get defeated in your next primary or you're castigated as that, you know, even DeSantis. Now he's, you know, only meatball. I mean, I don't know that you would have anybody that would have the stature. The, so that's that's number two to keep in mind. The last thing to keep in mind in all this is his supporters are motivated by turning turning over the system. And I told my Republican friend, I said, OK, guys, there's a guy on TV with me. I want to see your convention in Milwaukee if you don't nominate Donald Trump. You think January the 6th was a sideshow? If he goes to the convention and is not nominated, Katie Barr, the off two miles of five hundred miles of that place because they will leave there very upset. Okay, that that would be motivation for Democrats. That's for sure. I'd hey, listen, blow it up. No, I'm just kidding. I don't don't do that. We don't we don't want to do that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But it's but it's I mean it's scary to think that you know people are so. They've been duped. Let's just keep it real. They've been duped into believing this person could do something that he can't do. And he didn't do. He had four years to do all the things that he said that he was going to be able to do. I'm I'm looking out for the working man. And the first thing he did was pass a tax cut that actually raised taxes on the middle class. Right. So all the things that that they believe him to be able to do, he didn't do, hasn't done and will not do. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to fix people from believing that there are Jewish space lasers. So I, I, I don't know. One thing I want to keep us focused on, it's like Al Sharpton says, I'm not worried about Jim Crow. I'm not worried about James Crow. I'm worried about James E. Crow, the third federal judge. Okay. I'm more worried about the, the patrician Republicans who are the enablers of this. Those are the people that you have to be concerned about that stood an applause for Kavanaugh and stood an applause for the justices that are on Supreme Court. Believe me, the guy in the windbreaker living in, in Elwood wasn't there in the reception hall for that. These are the, these are the Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Federalist Society people that were there. Yeah. So please estimate that the patrician Republicans are not in support of this philosophy either. Yeah. And, 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 and just, you know, you, you said, Dana, you know, what what do these people think Trump has given them in his four years as president? Well, that 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 is the answer. He's given them courts that are, in fact, doing the bidding of the people who support Donald Trump. 
He's given us a, a Supreme Court that's not only gotten rid of Roe versus Wade and put the right to an abortion, the right to choose um, at grave risk, nation potentially nationwide. Um, you know, we have a we have a Texas Trump appointed judge who any day could rule that the um, abortion pill is not uh, legal and therefore not available nationwide, even in states like California and New York. Right. Um, and, and that's not the only thing we could do a whole program on all the yeah. ways that the U.S. Supreme Court has within the past year or two undermined um, values that most Americans hold dear and the rule of law. Um, and, and that's that's what people got for Donald Trump's four years in office. I mean, more than anything else, that's what they got. They got courts that will do their bidding. And that's that's I'm not saying that's a good thing, of course, and it's a bad thing. But if you ask, why do people still believe that he did them good? Um, that's the reason, because he put all those people that Mr. Winston was just describing um, on both the Supreme Court and the and the rest of the federal courts. I, I, I want to just throw in one more thing. because I know we're almost out of time, but the. Um, there's one more constitutional question that we haven't talked about, and that's pardoning. Um, so, you know, you say, why did Donald Trump run? Why is he running for president? Well, uh, as Mr. Winston quite accurately said, Trump thought that politically that would insulate him from being indicted, being charged with crimes from from a lot of other things, too. Um, and so, yeah, he probably was pretty surprised at what happened this week. But. On top of that, if he wins, and of course he in his own mind probably believes he would win because he believed he won the last time, um, the, the, you know, if he becomes president, he's in a unique situation to potentially be able to, to absolve himself of all of his legal troubles. Um, we, we don't have any precedent uh, for this, but um, there's a pretty decent argument that a president can pardon themselves for all past um, crimes, for all for all past criminality. So if Donald Trump wins, that's like that's the ultimate get out of jail free card. Um, of course, Nixon didn't do that, but that's because Nixon was going to leave office anyway. He had enough, sh- you know, he had enough sense of, of shame to recognize that he wasn't going to be able to go on as president. And as Mr. Winston said, his own party turned against him at the end. So Nixon knew he was leaving office. And so he cut a deal with his vice president to pardon him, uh, Gerald Ford, which, of course, had a big, big um, impact on Ford then losing the next election. Um, But Trump, he has no shame. So, you know, if he gets elected president, I would guess the first thing he does on inauguration day is issue a pardon of himself for all uh, for all crimes that, you know, you can't pardon for future crimes, but you can pardon for past crimes. And um, that'll and be the first thing he does. Crimes, no, that is exactly correct. William. He, he cannot pardon himself for state crimes. That would be a matter for the states, not for the president. But for all federal crimes, which are the really serious, you know, most serious ones that he faces, um, he can pardon himself. And I, I can see DeSantis doing something crazy like that, pardoning him in Florida. I can just see it. I mean, he's oh, 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 yeah. oh, for sure. Or, or yeah. for sure. dude in Georgia. What, uh, Kemp, is that his 
Yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe see him doing it. Maybe, maybe, maybe so. Um, now, I should say there is also a counter argument, which is that the pardon power of a president is only to pardon other people, not yourself. That's never been tested. It would have to be tested in court. Um, but in any event, you know, that's another I mean, uh, the nightmares here just keep coming. It's like the exorcist. You know, don't go up the stairs. There's always something else with Trump to be upset about. I want to share something. an experience I had a couple of days ago. I, I was in a nursery buying some grass seed. And, and this kind of goes back to what uh, the professor and Robin touched on about what motivates the base. And, and so I was in the nursery buying some grass seed. There's this elderly white woman there and she's having a problem walking. And so I walked in and I had on this same colorful Marine Corps hat that I'm wearing right now. And when I walked in the door, she locked in on me and just looked at me for a few. She said, oh, I thought you were wearing a Trump hat. I said, not in this life. At that moment, she seemed to overcome her disability. She stood up straight, put her finger in my face, and she was pissed off. She said, for everything that Donald Trump has done for this country, and he is not a racist. And so I'm, I'm reading the situation at that point. I said, well, I didn't come here to talk about Donald Trump. I turned and walked away. She was still talking. And I was sharing it with my brother later on that day as I was talking to him. He said, well, I thought you would have just eaten her alive. I said, no, that, that's kind of what she wanted was that confrontation where she could get loud and... uh and who who knows whoever else would have jumped in, in into the mix and we might have had a problem. So I just walked away from it. But it, it kind of makes me one thing that I believe is one thing that, that motivates the base is what Donald Trump preaches. And that is hate. Mm -hmm. They they live mm -hmm. on that. They feed on it mm -hmm. and they thrive on it. And it, it just uh, it, it explains a lot of their activities and, and their behavior. Uh, all over the country. But I, I, I got to ask this question because, you know, we're considered the longest running democracy in the world. And unfortunately, we, you know, we're no longer siloed off with the Internet and this world has gotten a, a lot smaller. How do you think our democracy and our form of government is being viewed across the, the planet right now? How are, are you know, um, other, you know, states looking at us going... What what do you think they're thinking, or how do they are are we the now are, are we now allowed to still be the authority on democracy around the world? Go ahead, Professor. Um, well, I I do a lot of work outside the United States, um, and I can tell you just point blank that they're they're just mortified. They, you know, people love to criticize the U.S. in lots of places in France and other parts of Europe. They love to pick on us because we're the big dog, right? <clears throat> but but the truth is, they also, they, they want us to be that beacon that, you know, that, that democracy that people aspire to. And it's, it's disappointing. It's mortifying for them to see us and our democracy at risk, to see our rule of law at risk. We are, we are the rule of law country that other countries aspire to be. And when they see what's going on here, um, they're, they're both, you know, they're, they're, they're mortified. That's, that's the best word I can use. I think we're the last bulwark to pr 
protect other democracy. I think we are still. I mean, you saw what happened in Brazil. They tried to replicate storming the Capitol. I think that, you know, you, you talk about other strong men. There are always strong men, right? Strong men that are hiding out uh, and protected. But I still think the world still looks at us as there's a lot of support for Ukraine and and those things going on there. One important thing, Dana, and I know your time and I saw the signal. This all started with Ukraine on impeaching this guy. I mean, people forget Vindman's testimony. They forget the ambassador being pulled back. No one even knew where Ukraine was on the map. Now, why would he be involved in trying to leverage, give me something on Hunter Biden and I'll give you weapons for Ukraine? Can you imagine Joe Biden saying that? So so when you ask about democracies around the world, I think they realize this all started with our efforts to protect Ukraine. And I think that that's resonated with our European allies and other people. Yeah, because Joe Biden has done a really outstanding job of of bringing that coalition back in line again. I, I It was so fractured and frayed, you know, uh, with us pulling, you know, wanting to charge NATO and all the things that that at 45 did. It is y'all can say what y'all want about the old man, but the old man has brought statesmanhood back to the White House and on the national stage. So say what you want about the old man. He might stutter and he might, you know, flub every now and then, but he he is a statesman and he knew how to bring all the powers back. The only fear I, I've been hearing or the only concern I've been hearing from the international community is will it last? And he put that coalition together in record time too. And with that, folks, we're going to go ahead and have to go ahead and park the bus. Um, Our thanks to Robin Winston, political strategist and former state Democratic Party chair and IU Emeritus Law Professor Joseph Hoffman, an award-winning scholar for helping us unpack the initial ramifications surrounding the indictment of former President Donald Trump. Please note Trump's arraignment is tomorrow and barring any unforeseen legal maneuverings, that is when his indictment is to be unsealed. I think his indictment is actually going to be unsealed on Tuesday. We will certainly be following these unfolding events closely. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have any idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure uh, we are, ah, let me start over. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. That email address again is uh, it on at wfhb.org. Bring It On's executive producer is Clarence Boone. The assistant producer is Liz Mitchell. Show consultant and WFHB News Department director is Cade Young. Program engineer, Chantal LaFontante. Original theme music was created by Jamil Effian with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I am William Hosea. And I'm guest co-anchor, Indiana's own Dana Black. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. 
Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.